0: This is Auburn. This really doesn't have a whole lot to do with Hugh Freeze. Auburn's head coaching spot is always going to be seven or more. On a scale of one to ten, the pressure meter at Auburn is always going to be higher than seven. doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Well, stay tuned, though, because I think Hugh Freeze and the momentum that's been created already. There's a lot of excitement on the planes and for good reason. Welcome to Always College Football. Today is the last day of July and there are camps opening up all throughout college football this week. So many people, so many teams taking the field for the first time today, people taking the field for the first time on Thursday, a lot of teams and a lot of things to look forward to here in the next couple of weeks of Always College Football. We're going to go through quarterback competitions. We're going to do all that stuff. We're going to have so much fun in the next couple of weeks. But before we do all that, we want to get into these first-year head coaches. We like to do the pressure meter. Scale 1 to 10. 1 to 10 when it comes to evaluating these coaches' current situations. Some might surprise you. Like To me, Matt Rule, there's a lot of pressure there. There's a lot of momentum that's been created, but there's a lot of pressure there. You don't want to miss that. We'll go through him, Luke Fickle, Hugh Freeze, you name it. We'll go through every single first-year head coach in the P5 and... We'll go through all the coaches in the G5 as well. I continue to appreciate all of you reaching out to us on social media, like Javier Fernandez. Hey, Greg, love the work. The show is awesome. Keep up the good work. Hands up. Appreciate you so much, Javier, man. This has been a blast for us. This is our dream to be able to do a college football show, talk in college football every day. We love it. We can't get enough of it. We're kind of addicted to it. And we don't have a marketing budget here at Always College Football. Our goal is to try to reach out from a grassroots initiative to all the people that feel the same way about the sport as we do. And we have seen all of you coming from every corner of the country to download the podcast. Please continue to do that. Please like, please rate, and please subscribe to the podcast. We also have appreciated all of you coming out and leaving some reviews, just a few that we want to get to. Warren Buffett, 123. Had no idea Warren Buffett was listening to the show, but Warren, we appreciate you. If you could next time in your review, maybe leave us a couple stock tips. That'd be really beneficial, I think, for all of us. Danger Dave, 999. I know you felt bad for me. So even if you're going to rate the podcast because it's a pity rating, that's okay. We'll take that as long as it's five stars. We very much appreciate it. ABC Butaka, Tim Atkins, Allergy Man. Odinson 22, Marler and T. Huck fan club, Jack's Horn and Doug's 80s. So we have seen you guys reach out in the last couple of days. Leave us a review on Apple Podcast. We so appreciate that. Keep that coming and tell your friends because we want everyone to be with us in the college football season. We're gonna get you prepared like nobody else. I can promise you that. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Mark, Jake, Jack, I'm Greg. Let's talk some first-year head coaches and the pressure meter here heading into the 23 season. We'll get things started with a return home for the, I guess, forgotten son for a moment. After he spurned them in 2018, Jeff Brom officially returns to Louisville to take over the program. Now, what's interesting about this whole cycle, we're going to do the pressure meter and, everything. and for Jeff Braum, we'll just get out in front of it. His pressure meter is at a five, which basically is a long way of me saying there's very little pressure, but you got to win. <laughs> he is from Louisville, Kentucky. He was a star quarterback there naturally in the early uh, in the 90s, coached the quarterbacks in the 2000s, actually got his first coordinator job at Louisville in 2008 and has now proven being able to get it done at both Western Kentucky and at Purdue. What he did at Purdue is nothing short of remarkable. The guy did a terrific job. He inherited a program that had struggled, (laughs) struggled mightily to say the least. We'll talk a little bit about Purdue here in just a minute, but just take my word for it. Statistically, they struggled, but he invigorated some life into the passing game. He got some big-time recruits, Rondale Moore being maybe the best example, and turned him into a star and eventually into an NFL draft pick. So I think that he is in a situation, look, he turned it down in 2018. He felt at that time it just wasn't right. Purdue, he had just taken the job the year before. It wouldn't have been right to leave so quickly in the process to jump for his alma mater. I think he did it the right way. And as a result, I think the timing is set up very nicely. Now, Louisville's a player. They have a terrific athletic department, or at least have in years past. They have deep pockets and resources, and they are a factor when it comes to NIL. So I think the pressure on Jeff Brom right now is probably about as low as it's ever going to get. You'll find, too, there are not many teams that I'm putting one through four on the pressure meter on a scale of one to ten. If you get a Power 5 job nowadays, you got to win. So your pressure is going to be a little bit higher. There are very few exceptions, which they're going to be a little bit lower. But I think Jeff Brom Louisville had a chance to be pretty decent this year. Jack Plummer comes over. got some transfer portal players at the wide receiver spot. There are some things to like about what they return. But I think the sky is the limit down the road. Very excited about the hire. Very much look forward to seeing what he does there. You know they're going to be able to throw it around the yard. So I feel great about that. Let's talk about who is leaving Louisville that allowed the job to become available for Jeff Brom. That would be Scott Satterfield. Now, if you remember it, Scott Satterfield, when he took the job at Louisville, year one was a remarkable success. And then he kind of flirted with South Carolina and maybe took an interview there. And he fell out of favor with the faithful there at Louisville. So he now is heading to Cincinnati and I'm putting his pressure meter on a seven. Now, I think Scott Satterfield's an excellent coach and will actually do good things at Cincinnati, but I do think it's going to take some time. You think about what they've lost the last couple of years. In 2020 and 2021, there have been a remarkable amount of players that have left Cincinnati for the NFL. And when you think about where they were, Cincinnati never have they ever recruited a top 40 class, yet they were consistently among some of the best. In college football, as it relates to the NFL draft, 16 players, which was the ninth most in the country over a two-year span and second most in the Big 12. That's how many guys are now playing on Sundays for Cincinnati. So the timing of Scott Satterfield taking over is less than ideal, and he's obviously jumping into the Big 12, which will be a much more difficult spot for him. Compared to what they had to play the last couple of years, this program is just a couple of years removed from a college football playoff burst. So Satterfield's going to a place with expectations and they probably won't have a ton of patience. If for whatever reason he gets off to a really slow start, his number is at seven. Let's go to Dion Sanders at Colorado right now. You would think that the pressure would be a little bit low. I, however, don't necessarily see it that way because people have already tabbed Dion as the savior. He's the guy that's going to take what's been a struggling Colorado program for the better part of the last decade and revitalize what was once a proud and storied program. I don't think it's going to be that easy. This is a team that went 1-11 and last year and lost seven games by 30-plus points. The reason why the number's not a little bit higher is is because they were so bad just a year ago. So having marked improvement won't be that significant. You think about the roster turnover already. The group collectively is already a lot more talented than they were last year. They added 45 players in 45 days at one point. Best signing class in 15 years. They had the number one rated transfer class, depending on the publication that you use, Everyone had them in the top three or four at the very worst, but some had them at the very top. So there's a lot to like about what's been brought in, and there's a lot to like with what Deion Sanders has already accomplished. Taking over a Jackson State program, won, you know, 18 games in conference, went 23 and 3 over the course of a couple years, and he generated a ton of buzz with his ability to recruit top tier players. Number one rated player in the country by some, deciding to go to Jackson State as opposed to going to Florida State or one of the big boys that they would have gone to traditionally. So the momentum's already been created. Here's why I think the number's just a touch higher, though, than what most people would think. Because if for whatever reason there's not significant improvement, Deion Sanders has already proven it at the FCS level, but every time he stepped on the field in the FCS, He probably had a better roster than the team he was playing against, just based on the personnel that was on that roster. So now that he goes to Colorado, that's not going to be the case. If they come out of the gates and go three and nine, will some of the luster wear off of Deion Sanders in the Colorado program? Perhaps. But if they go four and eight, five and seven, heck, six and six, That'd be a terrific year, and that pressure number would go down just a little bit because we'd be able to see and diagnose some of the progress that had been made up to this point. Very bullish on Deion Sanders at Colorado, and even more bullish now that they're going to be making their way to the Big 12 here in the coming years. Let's go next to Matt Rule at Nebraska. Some people are probably going to sit here and say, yeah, you know, I think this is probably going to be one where people strongly disagree with me. I'm putting Matt Rule's pressure meter on a scale of 1 to 10 at 9. You're going to say hang on a second. He's got a he's got a great contract. He has tremendous support. He has all these other things going in his direction. They already have some momentum going on the recruiting trail and like many, I'm kind of on board for them being a little disrupted this year. I'm not saying they're going to go to the Big 10 championship. But I would be surprised that this group isn't highly competitive. And I also would be surprised if they didn't pull off a significant upset. I think back to his time at Baylor, he had the best team in the conference in Oklahoma on the ropes at one point. And that was not a good Baylor team, I might add. But you think about what he's inheriting. He's inheriting a program that went 16-31 and under Scott Frost. It failed to reach a bowl game in each of his five years. And they never came close to becoming the program that Scott Frost promised Nebraska fans when he ultimately took the job. there were only, leading up to Scott Frost's tenure, only four losing seasons for Nebraska in the past 56 years. Okay? Clearly, that has not been the case here in the last few. Now, they had a ton of one-score games. They were very close, but they just never really got over the hump. Here's the positives for Matt Rule. If you look back at his time at both Temple and at Baylor, there's a very clear pattern. The first year is struggle bus, okay? In his first season at both Temple and Baylor, a combined three and 23, not ideal. The second season, you start to see some significant improvement. 13 and 12 in his second years at both Baylor and at Temple. And then finally, in year number three, that's when they start to break through in year number three, a combined 21 and seven. And by the way, Baylor, when he inherited it, we're not talking about the Baylor team that was competitive in the big 12 on an annual basis there in the mid 2010s. This is a program that had really come under hard times. So he had stepped into a very difficult spot and made them relevant very, very soon at temple. They had never had consistent success. He found it in a pretty short period of time, but I do believe the expectation level at Nebraska will always be teetering on the edge of unreasonable. Is it likely? Is it likely they get back to being as dominant as they were in the 90s? I don't know. I'd love to see it as (laughs) as a child of the 90s. I would love to see Nebraska back in the new year six, back in the, I guess, 12-team playoff, back in the semifinals. I'd love to see Nebraska playing for championships yet again. But we're talking about a place that fired Bo Pelini. I know this was a long time ago after he couldn't win more than nine games. Now, we all realize looking back at it, that was the high point for Nebraska football in the last two decades. Can Matt Rule get them back? I am extremely optimistic that he will. I just think the expectation level of Nebraska is to live back up to the way things were in the 90s. And that might take some time and some momentum before they can get up to that point. So the pressure meter on Matt Rule, even though everybody loves him, is still going to be insanely high because the expectations at the place are insanely high, and they should be. Never settle if you're a Nebraska fan. Let's go next and keep it in the Big Ten. Ryan Walters is heading to Purdue, one of the youngest head coaches in America, just 36 years old. And you think about what he was able to do at Illinois. He took over back in 2021 a defense that ranked the second worst in the power five. And they elevated all the way into the top 25, all the way up to number 14 last year, a group that was really, really stout. Now he steps in at Purdue, the first defensive coach that's been hired there in quite a while, but this is a program that has had some pretty dang good success these last couple years. The first time they've won eight games in a season in consecutive seasons since 1997 and 1998. Remember when Jeff Brum got there, He inherited a program that was just nine and 38 overall in the four years prior and three and 30 in conference play. So he stepped into a dumpster fire, made them relevant, made them consistent, made them dangerous. And now the expectation level for Ryan Walters is a whole heck of a lot different than the one that Jeff Brom stepped into now. Hiring a defensive coordinator at a place that's had a ton of success on the offensive side has been a little bit of a different approach, but I'm really excited about the hire that he made at offensive coordinator. That would be Graham Harrell. Graham Harrell brought in Hudson Card from Texas, who I think is a really solid option as your starting quarterback. He's accurate on the underneath and the, and the air raid system I do think is going to be successful at Purdue. We've seen similar styles in the past where they are a throw it around the yard type of approach. But either way, I think that Purdue's in a pretty good spot with Ryan Walters. I have his pressure meter at a six because I think Purdue, people don't realize this, Purdue has deep pockets. Purdue has a lot of support within their community. Purdue has a lot of access to resources, and they expect to win. Will they be able to win the Big Ten when things start to switch up and they get rid of divisions and all these other things? I don't know. I think that makes it a little bit more difficult, but right now he has time on his side That's why I'm putting Ryan Walter's pressure meter at six. Let's keep it in the Big Ten for a moment. Luke Fickle is the new head coach at the Wisconsin Badgers. And we all know anyone that's watched this show for more than five minutes knows that I have an infatuation with Luke Fickle. I love the guy. I think he's a tremendous coach. He'd be a guy I'd love to play for. I think he's just an awesome, awesome guy. Looks like Adam Sandler too, which is another huge plus, but I digress. Here's what I think makes his situation a little bit difficult. When I visualize and I think at night and I close my eyes and I think about Wisconsin football, it looks a certain way, right? They've won a certain way for a really, really long time. And Luke Fickle's kind of rolling the dice here. Now, I think it's a fair dice roll. And one that I think if Wisconsin ultimately wants to win national championships, let's be real, I don't think you're going to be able to run it down Georgia's throat en route to a national title. I think you have to have perimeter skill. I think you have to have very, very good, if not elite quarterback play. And I think you have to have dynamic weapons on the perimeter, plus complementing that dynamic weapon, I guess, quartet, if you go with a four wide receiver look. You got to have a running game that can keep you honest as well. Everyone thinks about the LSUs of the world back in 2019 when Joe Burrow threw for a billion yards. Yeah, that was really beneficial, but people forget Clyde's Edw- Clyde edwards Elaire rushed for like 1,400 that year. So it's great to have weapons. It's great to be able to throw it all over the yard, but do you have to maintain balance? Phil Longo has done that in his time, not just at North Carolina, but he did so at Ole Miss, and he also did so prior to that at Sam Houston State. The reason why the pressure on Luke Fickle is a seven, that's where I have him right now, is because he is altering the makeup of what Wisconsin has been in the past. I think it's a high risk. I think it's a high reward play that ultimately will pay dividends. But if for whatever reason they go out there and the offense isn't as dynamic, the offense isn't as explosive, That's going to fall on the head coach, and a lot of Wisconsin Badger fans are going to sit there and say, why don't we just go back to doing the way we always done it? I think there is a little bit of a risk there. So I put the pressure meter a little bit higher, but I also believe that Luke Fickle, of all the hires made this offseason, he's the one that I might be most excited about. Him and Matt Rule are probably 1A and 1B when it comes to the cycle terrific head coach that i think will find a way to create a lot of problems and a lot of headaches for coaches in the big 10 he knows the landscape like the back of his hand he grew up in the landscape he grew up in the big 10 he's going to do a great job with the badgers but don't get me wrong there is some pressure going with this type of offense in madison wisconsin let's go next speaking of offense how about kenny dillingham the youngest head coach in america And it's one of those situations where Arizona State has completely overcorrected. They went one direction, an NFL mind, Herm Edwards, older. Now they're basically completely overcorrecting and saying, we're going to go as young as possible. We're going to go offense. We're going to go with a guy that actually has way more college experience than Herm Edwards did before him. I do think that his track record has already proven to be very successful. doesn't matter where he's been. All you got to do is look at last year. Look at the job he did with Bo Nix. When Bo Nix went from Auburn to Oregon, he was at that point, I'm not saying he was broken because he had a lot of talent, but he wasn't quite the player at Auburn that his talent level would become. He had a lot of game. He had a lot of ability, but Kenny Dillingham got the most out of him. That's what needed to happen. Now he gets a chance with some talented young players at Arizona State, and the expectation level is not very low. Now, I actually have him as a three right now, partly because I think Arizona State's in a little bit of a period of flux. Will they stay in the Pac-12? Will they go alongside Arizona and Utah to the Big 12? I really don't know. All I know is that when I look at Arizona State, they feel like a program that has consistently underachieved for the better part of the last 30 years. You have great access to talent. You're in a wonderful, talent-rich area of the country. Tempe is right next to Scottsdale, right next to Phoenix. There's a lot of great players that come from that part of the country. So I think there's a long road for Kenny Dillingham, but it's going to take a little time to get that thing coming in the right direction. How about this one, a guy that's familiar with Kenny Dillingham, a place that actually once employed... Kenny Dillingham, it's the Auburn Tigers, and Hugh Freeze. Now, this is Auburn. This really doesn't have a whole lot to do with Hugh Freeze. Auburn's head coaching spot is always going to be seven or more. On a scale of one to ten, the pressure meter at Auburn is always going to be higher than seven. doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Even after Gus Malzahn was on the verge of winning the national championship back in 2013, the pressure the following year to repeat the performance was still exponentially higher than that of most other places. There's a reason why since Nick Saban took over at Alabama, Auburn's had five different head coaches and they just gassed Brian Harson after just two seasons. This is a pressure-packed place. But I actually think the number's a little bit lower than it would be traditionally. That's why I have Hugh Freeze at eight because I think the alignment at Auburn has never been better. Now, I've been pretty close to that program for a long time have monitored that program, have relationships with people in that program, have relationships with past head coaches. And it always felt like there was a tug of war between the boosters, the administrators, the athletic directors, and the head coach. There was always a tug of war for power. It doesn't feel like that's the case anymore. Hugh Freeze is already making a huge splash on the recruiting trail. Now, That's for 2024 and beyond, but if you look at what he inherited this year, man, they did a really good job of going and fortifying the roster with some really solid Division I prospects that played other places and might ultimately be starters day one there on the plains. I think Hugh Freeze is in a great spot, a great spot. He has great support. He has great access to NIL opportunities for his boosters and for his players, I think he totally has the support of everyone in the athletic department. I think the president is completely on board. And this is a place that is not that far removed from having big time, big time football. It feels like forever ago since Auburn was at their very best. I mean, it's been six or seven years since they were a real player on the national stage. But with a couple good recruiting classes, with Hugh Freeze's understanding of the SEC, Hugh Freeze's ability to reach the people that could support his program and reach the players that will ultimately choose his program, I think he's in a terrific place. Now, I would say the roster this year, I think they have a chance to be dangerous. Are they going to go and win 10 games? I don't see it like that. I think this is going to be a gradual build. They're going to have, if they get to seven or eight this year, that is a terrific year one for Hugh Freeze, especially knowing the depth of the SEC West. But then in year two, you get some of those young players that sign on the dotted line, hopefully coming up this December. Guys that spurned Georgia, guys that spurned Alabama, they're now going to Auburn. If they can play roles, pivotal roles early in their career, then could be 24, could be 25 when Auburn makes its national presence known. I think Hugh Freeze is the right guy at the right time for the Auburn Tigers. Now it's about getting to the finish line on the recruiting trail and continuing to create the support and cre- continuing to create the momentum that's been created already in the first eight year eight months of his tenure. Let's go just a little bit west to Zach Arnett at Mississippi State. Now, interesting situation here because I don't think nationally a lot of people know a whole lot about Zach Arnett, but they need to familiarize themselves with this young head coach that has done a great job at Mississippi State the last couple of years, two top 15 defenses in the past three years, and did so with an air raid offense. Now, Mike Leach altered his approach. It wasn't your traditional air raid where they're going to run a ton of tempo, going to run a ton of plays, and going to hang their defense out to dry. Mike Leach adapted to what needed to be done so that his defense would have a chance as the season went along. So he deserves some credit for Zach Arnett doing a great job on the defensive side. But when you look at how he attacks, you look at how he tries to go after the opposing passer. I really like this hire. I like the energy that comes with the hire as well. I also already really like his coordinator hires. Goes out, gets Matt Brock. That was his right-hand man the last couple years. He just gets promoted from within, so they keep continuity on the defensive side. And then offensively, he looked at the bigger picture and said, right now in the SEC, it's going to be very difficult to maintain competitiveness being one-dimensional. We have to create balance offensively. He goes out and he gets Kevin Barbet from Appalachian State. If you look at Kevin Barbet's work the last few years, Kevin Barbet is one of the best as it comes as, as creating both run opportunities and then building his pass opportunities off the run. Now, they're not going to completely abandon all of the principles that Mike Leach instilled the last couple of years in the passing game. Why would you? Will Rogers is a guy that's very comfortable running the air raid. But if you can complement those traditional air raid sets with a real Off-tackle stretch run game with a physical presence along the offensive line. I think that's a recipe for success. The pressure meter for Zach Arnett right now. And to say the number's this low in the SEC West is pretty dang impressive. I have him just at four right now on a scale of one to ten. He's going to do good things there in Starkville. I think they're going to return to being a very dangerous, very physical football team. They've been that the last couple years, but I think that could even be amplified with how they're going to control the line of scrimmage offensively. Let's go out and do just a couple more. Troy Taylor at Stanford, I'm going to put him at three. Right now, Stanford is as bad as they've been in quite a while. I mean, Stanford, man, 10 years ago, they were a perennial player in the New Year's Six and a perennial player playing in big-time BCS bowl games, but they've fallen on hard times. Remember, this is a program that six, seven years ago won the Rose Bowl. I mean, it hasn't been that long, but the consistency from a recruiting standpoint has not been there. Troy Taylor already has done a pretty good job on the recruiting trail. Now he's just got to continue to build on some of that momentum. But right now, Stanford, not a ton of pressure because I don't know where the investment is as far as the administration is concerned. I'm putting them at three. And then David Braun, who steps in as the interim head coach at Northwestern, I think the pressure's at one because the expectations are almost zero. I mean, you look at the roster where they were last year, the fact that they have a lot of issues within the program itself. I don't think there's a whole lot that could be done to salvage the 23 season for Northwestern. Now, if they surprise and overachieve, that's great. But I'm not anticipating that right now. So I'm putting David Braun at a one. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day. But sometimes when you're traveling for
1: business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any.
0: Along with the Power Fives, there were also 13 new head coaches in the group of fives, some of which are some notable names. Brian Newberry steps in at Navy. Difficult shoes to replace. When you take that into account, you had a guy that had been there for as long as I can remember in Ken Niamatololo. Now Brian Newberry takes over at Navy, but they're going to continue doing what they've always done. Trent Dilfer. Now the head coach at UAB, UAB transitioning into the American like so many of these other programs. He comes from Lipscomb Academy there in Nashville, Tennessee. He's already doing a pretty good job on the transfer portal, and he's been pretty outspoken about what UAB could be as a player in college football. Brand new stadium, some momentum created around Birmingham. So there's a lot to like about that hire. I think Trent Dilfer will do a really good job. Here's where it gets very interesting. Tom Herman is now the head coach at FAU. And people need to remember, now I know Tom Herman had his ups and downs at Texas, but the last time he was in the group of five at Houston, there were very few schools that could recruit as well as he did to a group of five program. I mean, think about some of the prospects that he was able to bring home, most notably Ed Oliver, Decided to stay at Houston and spurning every single school in college football and went on to have a great career at Houston. So Tom Herman knows how to get it done. And you just listen to some of the interviews. You listen to some of the times that he's gone in front of the microphone. Tom Herman's got a chip on his shoulder right now. And we've always thought, whether it be when Lane Kiffin was there or other people that have taken over the FAU job, this is a place where you can win. And you can attract talent. If you can just keep some guys at home, you'll be in really good shape. So I love the hire for FAU, and I love the opportunity to get back on track if you're Tom Herman. Biff Pogge, the new head coach at Charlotte. Don't know a whole lot about Biff Pogie outside of the fact that he has been the right-hand man at Michigan the last couple of years. Jim Harbaugh swears by him, and if Jim Harbaugh swears by him, I swear by him as well. Hopefully you can do some things at Charlotte that haven't been done in quite some time. Jamie Chadwell, another very interesting name. People might've forgotten this. Hugh Freeze obviously left Liberty for Auburn. Jamie Chadwell going and becoming the head coach at Liberty at a place that has had a lot of success in recent years, but he leaves a place that also had a lot of success in Coastal Carolina. Coastal Carolina filled that void with Tim Beck, the former offensive coordinator at NC State. So it'll be interesting to see that dynamic. Usually you don't leave the bird in the hand for the bird in the bush, but clearly Jamie Chadwell felt like there was an opportunity to be had at Liberty. He decides to leave a good situation for what he thinks might be a great situation. Kenny Burns takes over at Kent State. Lance Taylor takes over at Western Michigan. Now I've known Lance for 15 years. One of my good friends, so I'm just going to be very honest. Uh, I'm biased. (laughs) I think he's going to do a great job at a place that has had some success in the past. Now, the budget, not ideal, but Lance Taylor has been around some great players in the past and has recruited extremely well. Remember, he was at Stanford with Christian McCaffrey. He was at Notre Dame the last couple of years and did a good job there on the recruiting trail as well. So, Lance Taylor gets a chance to run his program. Hoping the best for Lance Taylor. I think he'll do a terrific job. Barry Odom. The new head coach at UNLV. An interesting one here because Barry Odom, by the way, had plenty of options here in the offseason. There were a bunch of schools that went out and were very interested in him becoming their next head coach. Remember, he was the head coach at Missouri a few years back, did a pretty dang good job at Missouri and has been patient there at Arkansas the last few years evaluating. He's had plenty of people coming to him and saying, hey, man, would you have an interest? He said no. He took UNLV. I think there's some interest here because UNLV feels like one of those schools that if the Pac-12 were to expand, UNLV would be near or at the top of the list alongside San Diego State and a few others. So something to keep an eye on there. And I'm a big believer in Barry Odom. Big believer in the type of person he is and the type of program he might be able to create there in Las Vegas. G.J. Kinney goes to Texas State, terrific hire. Now, I played with G.J. in New York for a little bit. He went and played for the Eagles for a little bit. Here's why I like G.J. Kenny hire. Look at the recipe of success right now in the state of Texas. Joey McGuire at Texas Tech. Uh, you know, Coach Trailer at UT San Antonio. It's feeling more and more like it's a high priority for Texas schools to recruit guys with Texas ties, more so than maybe ever before. And G.J. Kinney has basically said, we're going to recruit the high school players from the state of Texas. My dad was a coach at high school in the state of Texas. I have grown up and lived in the state of Texas. I know this state like the back of my hand. I have a tremendous relationship with the 21,000 Texas high school coaches. It's one of the strongest coaches associations in the entire country, if not the strongest. I think it is the strongest, but some people might say, well, what about this school? What about this state? What about this state? I don't know. Texas, that is a very strong contingent of high school coaches, and G.J. Kenny will know how to reach them, which in turn will hopefully help them recruit at a slightly higher level. Eric Morris comes down from Washington State to take over for North Texas. An interesting hire here because Eric Morris basically played for Seth Luttrell, runs a similar offense to Seth Luttrell. Seth Luttrell was fired this past off season. He shouldn't have been, I might add, and Eric Morris steps in. But either way, be interesting to see what he can do with the Mean Green here in the coming years. Alex Golish takes over for USF. USF is an interesting program to keep an eye on. Uh, I'm not necessarily suggesting they're going to get an immediate invitation to the Power Five. I'm not. Uh, I think that that's maybe even the littlest bit unlikely. But if you look at the investment that's been made by the administration, they just approved a massive, beautiful new facility for their football program. It feels like the investment is there. And USF, remember 15 years ago, this was a team that was number two in college football back in 2007. You're going to say, well, 2007 was a weird year. I completely agree. Either way, the Bulls were sitting there in the top two at one point during that chaotic season that was 2007. So a program with, I think, a pretty high ceiling. And hopefully Alex Golish can install that Tennessee offense and create some excitement for the Bulls moving forward. And then finally, Kevin Wilson returns to the head coaching chair at Tulsa. Did a great job at Ohio State the last couple years. Has done a pretty dang good job in the past. Has a great understanding of how to recruit. And we'll run an offense that is very quarterback friendly and create a lot of problems for opposing defenses. So that's the list of the group of five moves that were made this past offseason. There's some notable names in there if you listened closely. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. As always, we appreciate so many of you that submit questions. We're getting like a bunch every day now. So we're trying to get to them. I appreciate y'all continuing to send them in. You can also do so online on our social media at alwayscfb, but the best way to contribute to our mailbag is alwayscollegefootball at gmail.com. Coops, where are we going today?
1: First question comes from Patrick in Florida. Do you feel FSU has to beat LSU to give you confidence going into the Clemson game? Also, is the LSU or Clemson game more important?
0: Which win would have more impact on recruiting? A great question. And without trying to sound like a prisoner of the moment, just understand where I'm coming from here, okay? The LSU game has absolutely nothing to do with the Clemson game. Do not connect the dots. Two very different situations to win the conference championship, to ultimately get to the college football playoff. I think you have to win at least one of the two. But if they play poorly against LSU, it's not going to make me feel really badly about their matchup with Clemson a couple weeks later. We'll start with that. So we'll disconnect those two games for a moment. Here's where I stand on the Florida State LSU game. This is the most important game in Mike Norvell's tenure up to this point. It is the most important. And you say, Greg, it's week one. Like, how can you be such a prisoner of the moment? How can you put this game on such a pedestal? Here's why there has been tremendous momentum created for Florida State this entire offseason. They've done a great job in the portal, they're doing a great job as it relates to high school recruiting. Everything seems to be going in the direction that FSU is going to be back. I believe they are. If they lose the game against LSU in what I think is a pseudo home game right there in Orlando, it could disrupt some of the momentum that has been created already. I'm not going to say all of a sudden that Mike Norvell is going to be in job security you know, turmoil or he's going to be on the hot seat. No, not at all, because they can still, even if they lose that game, they can accomplish everything they need to accomplish. I don't need to go back all the way to 2014. But y'all remember when Ohio State lost to Virginia Tech in week two, everyone said Ohio State's done. They have no chance. This JT Barrett guy is not Braxton Miller. like They're not going to be able to run the table. Well, they did. They won 14 in a row, 13 in a row, and won the national championship. So it doesn't mean that Florida State can't still accomplish all their goals. They can. But in order to keep the pedal down, Mike Norvell has been in a full sprint since they won the bowl game last year, and they've played beautifully. They really have. They've played beautifully last year at times. But if you can't beat LSU, a program that... Look, Florida State ultimately wants to win national championships. Brian Kelly is in year number two at LSU. If they're already ahead of Florida State, that's going to cause a little bit of a bad taste in Florida State Seminoles fans' mouths for the entire season. So I think that's a massive one. Not just for Florida State, but for the ACC as well. People have said the SEC is the grand poobah. People have said the SEC is the end-all, be-all. And the SEC West is a ridiculously deep league. Well, if Florida State goes and gets a win in week one, think about how much that's going to prop up and make it a reality that Florida State is back. It won't be about talk anymore. It'll be about the result. So I think that is the most important game of the Mike Norville tenure. If they can get it done, it'll go a long way in altering the perception of where Florida State is and where they're ultimately going.
1: Very true. And plus, they could get a rematch with Clemson in the ACC championship game if they were to lose that game in September.
0: Yeah. I mean, the Clemson game has nothing to do with the Florida State. Like, we'll try to... The Clemson and LSU game, we're going to try to connect the dots. Of course we will. Why wouldn't we? (laughs) You know, we've watched and listened and taught college football all day, every day. But they really... One shouldn't affect the other, regardless of what the circumstances are.
1: And I think, by the way, you hit the nail on the head with the overall perception of the ACC. It's Ben Clemson and everybody else. If Florida State can go in and beat LSU, that conference all of a sudden gets a boost with two top five, ten teams. So, Yep. Interesting. All right, next one from Robert in Nebraska. I see the 12 team playoff being a letdown every year now going forward for G5 teams because every year they most likely will have to travel to a number five or six FSU, LSU type team and get beaten badly. And in the end, there's no bowl game, just another, just an annual loss
0: at school X. I don't agree with that because I mean, the opportunity to basically. The group, the G5 has never had access. Now they've gotten in, but they've never had annual access to be able to build on. And now if I can say, hey, we made the playoff last year. You want to consider our school? I think it's going to help you from a recruiting standpoint. Okay, you lose to, you go on the road and you have to play against a big time opponent. Great. You have an opportunity to beat that big time opponent. And how many times have we seen upsets in the past? And we've seen Appalachian State beat Michigan. We've seen Appalachian State beat Texas A&M. We've seen group five teams beat power five teams in their place all the time. And guess what? I've said this in the past. If you are a national championship contending team, I honestly think at times it's more difficult to play at home because the second that Other team that's supposed to get beaten badly, they come into your house, they start fast, and all of a sudden they're up 17-3. Then all the pressure is on the home team to get the job done and to overcome. You're supposed to beat this team. Why is it? And the fans get anxious and the fans get tight and the team can feel that tightness in the stands. It's quiet. It's hard to recreate that momentum. So, look, I think getting to the playoff is a remarkable accomplishment. A remarkable accomplishment accomplishment. So regardless of what the result is, knowing that you have access on an annual basis, I think is going to go a long way for these teams' ability to attract talent, not just at the high school level, but potentially at the college level in the portal as well. Final thought here as we do this from time to time, how do we feel about alternate uniforms in college football? I just, I really want to know because you see Notre Dame's coming out with the all green uniforms. You see some other alternate uniforms that have been coming out. You actually saw in the NFL, the Philadelphia Eagles are bringing back the Kelly green uniforms. And I look in the NFL, I kind of get it because I think the uniforms of the 80s and the 90s are actually probably cooler than the uniforms of today. But in college football, I have never been a supporter of the alternate uniforms. If you're Oregon and that's part of your brand, then by all means, have 1,000 different combinations and do it every week. I'm great with that. But if you're Notre Dame, if you're Georgia, if you're Ohio State, if you're Alabama, if you're USC, if you're Texas, if you're a traditional powerhouse where I know what your uniform is going to look like when you take the field, please don't mess with it. There were times actually, really not that long ago, when I'm watching clips of games and I actually don't even know who's playing. Like when Notre Dame wore those navy blue uniforms with navy blue helmets, I'm like, who the heck is Navy playing here? Like I don't even know who that team is. You are the Golden Domers, baby. Do not mess with that. Don't mess with your uniform. I just... Maybe that's just the old man yelling at the cloud. Am I the, you tell me, always CFB at Greg McElroy. Am I the old man yelling at the cloud? I know the kids like gear and I get all that. That's fun. I'm fine with that. But man, don't abandon your identity as a college football program. And your identity are those awesome helmets, are those great uniforms. When I turn on Texas, I want to know that I'm watching Texas. So. I digress. Like I said, I'm probably the old guy. I can live with that. At 35 years old, I've come to terms with the fact that I am no longer hip and I'm no longer young. I'm middle aged and it is what it is. For all of us here at Always College Football, we so appreciate you guys. Please continue to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. It helps us out immensely. Continue to tell your friends. Please tell them that we're talking college football. We're going to put a positive spin on college football every single day. So we appreciate you guys taking the time to spend the afternoon or the evening or the day or the morning, whatever time you're listening to the show. We appreciate you being with us here on Always College Football. Also continue to leave reviews. It helps us out a lot. Give us some tidbits, what you like, what you don't like. We are trying to tailor the show to your wants. And needs for all of us here at Always College Football. For Mark, Jake, Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day, and remember, it's always college football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcast.